By the way, I don't do test, test, test every time. You do test, test, test every time. Well, how are we going to know if the mics work? <laughs> we should come up with a better intro. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the Northern Seminary Library, the Griffiths Conference Room, I give you Jeff Holsclaw and the Theology on Mission podcast. With how was that? David Fitch. Yes, that was a lot better. Hey, I got bad news for you. What's the bad news? Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Don't freak out. Well, we're going to create an actual sound studio here. We're no longer going to meet in the Griffith Conference I Center. I refuse. Yeah, no, we are. We're going to create... attached to this place. I'm serious. No. We're... It's, it's just... all about the vibe. I'm just letting everybody know that uh, we're going to have a real sound studio okay, at some the, point. If the podcast goes into a real downer, you're going to know why. Okay. If our, if our listenership goes into a tailspin, we'll know why. From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission. The podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. What's the topic for today? The topic for today is the difference between launching and landing. The difference between launching and landing, we're not talking about rockets. We're not talking about planes or paper airplanes or anything like that. We're talking about planting a church. What is the difference between launching and landing? Okay, can I do a switch up on you here? You really screwed this up for I me. I screwed it up. What yeah. did I do? Okay, okay, wait. Really, what I wanted to talk about here was uh, the worship service and the place of the worship gathering in the whole life of a congregation. And I want to illustrate it by... The question, when should we do a public worship gathering uh, if we're planning a church? You know why I blew that? Because I saw on the show notes here, I saw an alliteration launching. I love alliteration. I put it in all my sermons. All my teaching, everything always alliterates. So I just like immediately went, went You're right a natural alliterator. And so I, did, I, I didn't even know what the show topic was. I just saw alliteration. Oh, launching and landing. This is amazing stuff. Okay. So the worship service, public worship service. Yeah. I mean, people I think, of God gathered around together. When does it happen? How, yeah, was well, it a better the way, lead in? The way I, uh, so we're talking about the timing of a worship service within a church planting trajectory. And the question is, when do you go public with a worship service? And I, I like to talk about it in terms of the sanctuary versus the living room. And when we had, let's call it the social condition of Christendom, what we had there was a a Christianized culture where there were a lot of Christians, where the majority of people were either Christians or understood what Christianity was and therefore were looking for a church by going to a worship service. That's what they did. In post-Christendom, it's quite different because in post-Christendom, we do not have a majority of people going to church. We don't even have a majority of people who even know or understand Christianity. In fact, we probably have a significant part of the population that is antagonistic towards Christianity. And so the the role and place of the worship service changes. So when we are in Christendom, how is the worship service different than when we are in post-Christendom? Can you give me a few of your ideas? How is have it, anything. How is it different? How is the what worship service? Oh, what role, what role does it play, does it play in the overall structure and organization of a people of God in a neighborhood. 
between Christendom and post-Christendom, I think that I think the gathered worship service plays an essential role in both situations, of course. But it is it is different, and it comes about at a different kind of maybe pace, life cycle, or pace. Um, in Christendom, the going as you said, the sanctuary, going to the sanctuary was uh, kind of the apex of your maybe your week, or it was the total commitment of your church, you know. Life was going to the sanctuary, having things done to you or for you and things like that. Whereas in post-Christendom, I think for the most part is it ends up being um, uh, one thing out of many. That is crucial. He's pointing his finger right at me. That, that is, is crucial. crucial. Like, yes. Okay, for... Uh, in Christendom, we kind of assume the worship gathering is a, a goods or a service that Christians need. And it, it is something that can be almost distributed by just showing up. And we do it in a way that, makes, that fits people's already existing rhythms of culture, already the orbits of what's going on in culture. So we might even have a Saturday night service uh, because people can fit it in easier than, say, when sports and other things take our time on Sunday morning. Or they'd rather just sleep in. Well, let's uh, go to a Saturday uh, service. I'd why do you have to go in. negative? Uh, well, I'm just saying. Why do you always have to? Never mind. I'm, you, you, I'm an upbeat you guy. Okay. But, but, but when we are gathering a church, a gathering of the people of God into the kingdom, um, we want to be careful about making the worship service the first thing we do. You know, the first thing we do when we launch in Christendom is we want to get as many Christians to come to our church as possible to gather and and develop a vision for what we want to accomplish in this place as Christians. But we are feeding off of an existing market of Christians, and maybe we're making our church service more relevant, more uh, accessible, uh, more convenient, whatever it might be. We're upgrading church for whatever reason, the de-churched people or the former Christian, the people that went to other churches, or just the Christians that are there that moved that are looking for a church. Those people, we want to make church accessible. But when we have no market and we're looking to gather a people to be present with the gospel in a neighborhood or a context. We want to be careful, I suggest to you, careful about doing that. Have you got any, maybe, uh, inclinations as to why? Well, I think we need to be careful because uh, people's expectations are different, and maybe we should set their expectations to be different. I think the expectation in Christendom is that you, you measure people's commitment by whether they come on Sunday. In Christendom, yes. Yes, in Christendom, you measure their commitment. And I think a lot of times it's, oh, well, someone will come on Sunday, and then you feel like they're really great disciples if they come to some other activity throughout the week or if they volunteer over here or if they join your Bible study you know, on Thursday or something like that. But if at least if they're coming on Sundays, we feel like we're getting somewhere. And I think it's almost the reverse in post-Christendom. There's people in our congregation, probably yours too, who don't regularly come on Sunday morning who come to other activities, other gathering practices in people's homes and other places and feel super committed to those other places. And then the Sunday morning worship gathering is um, on a different level of commitment. And if we were just to say, oh, they're not committed, they don't come on Sundays, we'd be totally doing them a disservice. We'd miss an opportunity to meet them as they're practicing following Christ in their lives. Uh, We judge them 
inappropriately. And so I think we need to be aware of even our own expectations of people's attendance and things like that. And so on a, in a church planning context, you know, are we spending all of our energy trying to get people there on Sunday when that for them isn't their first kind of arena of uh, commitment making kind of, you know, right. ideas? I'm not making a commitment to come somewhere on Sunday morning. I'm making a commitment to you as a person, and part of that commitment is coming over to your house or you coming over to right, my house. So now we are we are actually looking at church differently. Now we're looking at uh, church as the people of God in a whole rhythm of life throughout the entire week, of which the Sunday gathering is one uh, part of the whole. Right. And if we were to start with the um, Let's say the worship gathering, and, and, and I like to say, are you going to start in the sanctuary or in the living room? If we're going to start... Can we get in, two S's there? You know, the sanctuary. Sorry, and, it's not going to work for me. I, come I on, prefer, give me the alliteration, I man. prefer P's, by the way. But anyways... That uh, is true. If we are going to start in the sanctuary, we... Um, we too soon. If we're going to start too soon a public gathering, we might put too much emphasis on that gathering and, you know... Too much might, time... We spend all of our energy and time and energy. Well, I believe that a Sunday Sunday gathering done correctly does not take as much time as as a performative uh, experience. But that's another topic for another podcast. What I'm worried about is immediately you put too much energy into this thing and you create a passivity. It pacifies as an audience as it reinforces the audience into an expectation they had from church where they came from before. And this expectation, I suggest, you know, oh, we're going to do church like we always did. Well, no, those of us who are planning churches for mission are actually calling Christians into a kingdom way of life, not doing church as a set of programs. And so if you if you do not, if you start a Christian worship gathering service with the rows and the preaching and everything, uh, this expectation you might be reinforcing from the previous place and it might be impossible to overcome in the months and years that lie ahead. Certainly, and that that passivity is something our whole culture is training us into anyways. And so why reinforce it on a Sunday? Uh, You know, we go to movies, you know, to receive something. We go to concerts. You know, we have all these different avenues where we're just sitting around. We have games. We have Netflix, right? There's so many arenas in our lives where we're just passive and i think we're trained into that expectation and when your worship service just kind of reflects that maybe you think you're being relevant or something like that but are we just reinforcing a bad uh posture that's uh prevalent all throughout our lives i was talking with uh, a young guy that was here uh at northern yesterday who is a northern part of seminary northern, yes he wasn't in this uh conference room though it was somewhere else, unfortunately for him, I think. But he was visiting. He's part of a smaller campus church. and uh, But, he, you know, he goes and visits other kind of larger churches. And there was this big church that had planted. Uh, and they were in a theater. And he said he went in and the usher gave him uh, the bulletin, you know. And then the guy said, enjoy the show. <laughs> Enjoy the show. Enjoy the show. Did you find out the name of this church in Chicago? No. And this guy, you know, he was just like... We don't want to call anybody out. Flabbergasted. Like, what do you mean? You're like, enjoy the show. Like, 
church service should not be a show. So yes, we end up reinforcing so, all these bad aspects of our the, cultural the second, life. The second part of this is that I really feel church, by planning a church, we're calling people into a social reality, a, a, a relational reality. We need space then to uh, develop uh, question, dialogue, ask questions. We need to hear the stories of what God's doing among us and we need to talk about hardships and we need to ask what is God doing here it's a social reality and and so the first year's gathering should have a feel of a living room as opposed to a sanctuary and the more formalized the worship gathering is um, we foreclose the possibility of a relational space and that's never going to happen if it doesn't happen at the very foundation and core of this missional community you are founding in a neighborhood. Amen. I've probably said this before on the podcast, but the way we talk about it is that we want to be, we like our worship services should have the feel of a family party, not a formal performance. Right, they're just you gather, you have a party, you celebrate different things. You know, some of it might be amazing, other of it might you just kind of stumble through. Except for well, no, you have the feast days. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. So instead of having a formal performance where everything comes down to a T and there's a time list and you know and everything needs to be perfect, it's a party and sometimes you know things can go off the rails or that one person talks too long. You know, but that's great. It's a family party. It's no problem. Yeah. So now let me go off on another issue. Okay. So now um, I'm now saying that the worship gathering should be part of a rhythm of a whole week as opposed to the center focus one time a week when we all become Christians and then go back out. It should be part of a neighborhood uh, contextual rhythm. And so that we gather on Sunday, kind of like what you just finished talking about, out of a rhythm, and we bring all that's happened from this week, kind of like the disciples coming back after they were sent in the village in the neighborhoods, reporting to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, all that God had been doing, uh, even the demons obey us, Lord. And and they worship and thank God. And, and so the worship gathering should take up a role within a whole rhythm that encompasses the whole week. Now, if you start, too early with a worship gathering and you haven't had a chance to develop relationships you haven't had a chance to say we're going to meet in this bar or this town hall or this function or the mothers are going to be in in this uh, mom's group over here and the fathers are going to be hanging out over here where we've got a we've got an engagement over there and 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 and, and you just your life is formed out of this idea that we do this one thing of the week. I fear that the rhythm will never develop. And so we need to have a way of seeing the worship gathering as a part of or an extension of the rhythm of what God's doing in the neighborhood. All that suggests a different way of thinking about the worship gathering than when we used to start a church and we used to make the worship gathering central to the planting of a congregation. Now, can I just talk a little bit about the opposite problem? The problem that happens when a missional congregation refuses to have a public worship gathering? 
Yes, please do. I was I was beginning to wonder because there's sometimes you can tilt too far the other way. Sometimes I have, have tilted too far you, the other way. Not you, but I just meant, well, maybe you, but uh, I just meant in general. People, I you, tilt a lot too can, far and always. It's all over the place. Is we can end up being so focused on family that we become this insular group that's not no longer uh, aware or welcoming to other people who might join, which is a problem. So I don't know if that's where you're going, but right. go ahead. Right, and so, um, yeah, uh, famously, uh, Peace of Christ, when it started, started in a basement in uh, old, uh, in, in Bur- I was going, almost going to say old Burbaum's house, but Burbaum's not that old. But uh, anyways, uh, they met in a basement for a couple of years. Now, I, that's a church we sent out from Life in the Vine. Right. And I'm there now. Just so you know, John Burbaum is as old as me, so that's not that old. Anyhow. Right, and John Burbaum is a graduate of Northern Seminary. He's more mature Seminary. than I am, probably. Well, he's a graduate of Northern Seminary, whereas you're a graduate of another seminary, <laughs> which we don't want to talk about. But anyways, no, that seminary is a good seminary, too. Uh, Trinity. Uh, but anyways, um, back on topic so, here. Back on topic. I, I, started I come, in a basement. I would come visit Peace of Christ. Now, what happened is a, a building was given to us because a church kind of closed and uh you know so we were given a building and uh i would go visit the church and i could not find them the door was locked in the front there was a little piece of cardboard with some magic marker piece of christ church meets in the basement it took me the door was locked and it took me like 10 minutes to find them down there okay that to me was a signal that this this uh caution towards the worship gathering public presence had maybe gone too far right so this is the, so and there the have name, been many mistakes including life on the vine when we started too quickly we waited a year but in my opinion we still started too quickly with the worship gathering you were there at the first time we met publicly right uh, like the third time the third time so but um on the Along other hand eight other people yeah, on the other hand, let's try to understand that there's a, if we never move out of the basement into sort of a public presence, we tend to become a community that never engages strangers. We, we become dangerously insular, introverted. Uh, eventually, we have to engage. Lacking a public presence... Uh, means that our witness is only individual. You get what I'm saying? Right. So it's not so much a criticism of the house church movement, but there is a caution that if you're just meeting in houses and you're never even um, kind of making known, if you're never in public spaces, there can be this inadvertent barrier of hospitality. You think you're being most hospitable because you're meeting in houses, but at some point that almost can work against you based on the culture we live in. Well, it just says to uh, the town, the village, the city, aha, there is a public presence there. These people, this is more than just an individual fanatic loving Jesus. This is a social reality that is infecting our town, and it's called Peace of Christ community. It's a witness that Jesus does something more than just to individuals. He does something social. He transforms the way we live together 
in the neighborhood. And to do that, people got to be able to see it. They got to be able to see more than just you as an individual. They got to see, oh, that's what it means to reconcile. That's what it means to love people. That's what it means to live in joy amidst death and suffering. And, and that takes a people. And that's why, you know, First Peter says uh, that he has called out a people to proclaim his mighty works. To proclaim means display before the world his mighty works. So we need a public presence, and we need a public service. Now, I don't actually think it's a good thing for strangers to walk off completely strange, never been Christians before, into our worship service, although I would hope it would be accessible enough for them to be kind of onlookers in some way. I actually think the best intersection there happens in our tables or in our neighborhoods. That's where uh, people can get introduced to the gospel. Nonetheless, we need a public presence. So to wrap it up, don't make this public presence, this, this display of who God is in the kingdom, the first thing you do on a Sunday morning in a worship service because then you might promote passivity. You might direct all of your time and energy into that one event. But also don't delay it too long and don't become this kind of uh, insular group of which others can't see or know about so that they can begin to wonder, so that they can begin to be drawn into this alternate reality. Now, you said infect the neighborhoods, but that's, you know, like we're not trying to kill people, right? What about like inoculate or something like that? Like we're trying to, to witness to, we're trying to share, you know, what these about things. What uh, we are infecting them with something good? Is that possible? Sure. Sure, I suppose Inoculate. Inoculate. I that got the two really eyes there. for me either. Yeah, it's not that. It's not a good metaphor. If you listeners have a better metaphor besides uh does fact, begin with an I, though. Or inoculate. It could be anything else like that. So anyhow, so not too soon, but not too late. This is kind of like the Goldilocks theory of church planting. You have anything to add? Are we in? We're done. Uh, you've, have you All been right. reading a book? Hey, uh, so... Uh, I have been reading a book, but you got yours handy there. Let me pull mine out. So what have you been reading? Oh, I just What you reading, as we say You know, I'm a big fan. He doesn't know this. I believe he's retired, but his name is Denny Weaver. And he is, for years, at uh, Bluffton University in Ohio, uh, a good Anabaptist theologian. But he he wrote this book, uh, John Howard Yoder, Radical Theologian, and I've just been reading it. And, I, and if people are interested in the intricacies of Anabaptist theology, especially how it plays within eschatology, I'm reading a couple of pieces on, on Oscar Kuhlman and John Howard Yoder, Karl Barth, John Howard Yoder. I tell you why I think this is so important. It's, it's important to understand how eschatology works in our theology and how the church exists within its relationship to Jesus. And Karl Barth's The Ladder, uh, Oscar Kuhlmann, uh, a famous salvation historical German theologian reacting, uh, German New Testament uh, uh, scholar reacting to Boltmann post-World uh, War II Germany. Uh, so anyways, all this to say, I'm learning about that. I reckon, If you want to delve deeper into the, the study of Anabaptist theolo- theology and John Howard Yoder, I recommend it. All right, well, Denny Weaver has written also a book called The Nonviolent Atonement. Is that right? Right. It's the classic one that we all read when we want to understand the implications of violence and the atonement and the cross. Which I 
I'm sad to admit I haven't read. But I bring that up as a transition because I've been reading with my theology class, The Nature of the Atonement, which is a collection of four views um, on the atonement. And we were reading the uh, essay on Christus Victor by Greg Boyd, as well as Penal Substitution by Thomas Schreiner. Um, and those the essays were fabulous as far as presenting the merits of those two different views. And so just reflect on our journey through Lent, reflecting on the nature of the atonement, Christ's victory on the cross, Christ securing forgiveness through his death and resurrection. It's been a really rich time in the class, and it's been really profitable reading these. Yeah, so so just to wrap this up, I know it's gone long. I just think it's so important for pastors today, if they're going to engage in this culture, to understand the full breadth of the wisdom of the gospel, of the atonement, all these various questions. And uh, instead of instead of just repeating uh, what we heard 30 years ago, a lot of us are maybe only 30 years old, but we are repeating what our parents heard, and they're repeating. And meanwhile, the gospel must be proclaimed in a context that has so significantly changed and presents so many changes and entry points. This is why you got to come to Northern Seminary and study and learn things like this with you, Cherith, McKnight, nice me, plug. Me. even you. Yeah. Even you on the atonement. Yeah, well, uh, I know we did a podcast on uh, the gospel, which gospel, but we really need to do one on the atonement. People have questions. What did Jesus' death really accomplish? And why why did like Jesus that. have to die? Yeah, why did he have to die? Or was it just some political accident and that his death really was meaningless? What are the polit- Me and McKnight got on a little tiff today on Facebook because uh, uh, he accused me of making Jesus political, and I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. So if you guys are interested, and girls, and whoever else is listening here is interested in the atonement, please jump on our Facebook or other places and let us know that you want to hear that. So speaking of you and McKnight, this podcast getting is going on awfully No, long. this is, we're, we're good. Speaking of you and McKnight, we're going to do, we're not, usually we do Fitch versus Fitch, where I pull something off of Facebook, but today we're doing Fitch versus McKnight. So Great. just create, just just yesterday in the seminary. Just yesterday on Facebook, you you posted the church gathered around the Eucharist is a challenge to the primacy of other forms of economic organization, especially capitalism. Right, and Isn't then that McKnight great? jumps in and responds. It also challenges the centralization of power and socialism. He likes calling you a socialist. So what do you say? The church gathered around the Eucharist well, challenges. Economic McKnight probably thinks Canada is socialist, and that's a bad thing. I think if Canada, if that's what socialism is, it's a good thing. Okay, but anyways, having said that, um, you know, this we got to do a podcast on this: the intersection or interrelationship or witness of the church in, but not of, capitalism. We all know capitalism, and I'm going to keep this short. We all know capitalism shapes us by the fact that we get a paycheck, we get a bank account, we get bills, we get credit cards. We have pressures on us to pay bills. We have pressures on us to make it to to uh, acquire a job. Um, it's all on us. It's all on me. But there's all these ways of the, that play on fear, insecurity, and dependency on my bank account. And I just want to say all that works against the social reality that Jesus is creating around the Eucharist where we share in one another's uh, 
uh, socioeconomics, among everything else as well. And we need to learn how to become less dependent on our bank accounts and more dependent upon the new kingdom of God that he is creating in Jesus Christ. Let's have a podcast on well, that. Now that. We should really talk about kingdom economics now that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump both won in New Hampshire. Newsflash if you haven't heard, although I'm sure all of you listening have. So we really should talk about that. So we'll put that also on the list of podcasts I'd say we got that a are good, coming up soon. Uh, seven or eight months to get that one in. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, this is Jeff Wolfsclaw and Dave Fitch signing off from Northern Seminary. Griffith oh, by Conference the way, Room. Oh, by the way, I forgot a quick announcement. Um, Northern Seminary is actually taking applications for new students, and we've waived the application fee. So just for this, the rest of this month in February, if you're interested in for Northern... Master's level programs. For the Master's Levels programs, please check out the website. Come to seminary.edu slash apply. And waive the fee for the application. And I just encourage uh, people who are not training for the clergy, but just professionals who want to explore what it means to know God and to know the scriptures and to know the theological cultural questions that are weighing on us and our families. Come to Northern, take a class on a Monday or a Tuesday night or a Thursday night, but but most of them are on Monday and Tuesday nights, and, and join in with us. I think theological education is for everybody. Amen. Theological education is for everybody, and we're trying to do that here at Northern Seminary. Signing off from the Griffith Conference Room, soon to be our sound studio. I'm not leaving. Yeah, soon to be our sound studio. Jeff Holscott, Dave Fitch. See you next time, everybody.